Great. Am I switched on? Well, I am electronically anyway. <laughs> it's really great to be with you today. Um, for me, it's a bit of a, uh, a really interesting connection because obviously John and Marion came over to Winchester when I was uh, a trainee there in Winchester. And uh, so uh, I've got much to thank John for in the same way that you have. And uh, so I feel it's a family link kind of being here. I feel very at home with you guys. And uh, it's, you know, it's lovely to be here. So thank you for your warm welcome. Uh, I'm, I'm married to Jo. Um, I'm the bigger part of the deal. She's the lovely slim one. I keep trying to Bluetooth some of it to her, but it doesn't seem to work. Um, I've got four children, uh, Joseph who's at university, Millie who's at college, uh, Connor who's at secondary school and Jake who's at the top end of primary school and uh, so family life is always fun, always busy, always challenging and as my son Joseph was going uh, up to university and it was getting to the end of his school career it caused me to just reminisce a little bit about my own school days. So for me school uh, was boarding school, I went to boarding school uh, aged 11, or I used to think of it more as a holiday camp with the necessary interruption of the occasional lessons but most of the time it was just football, swimming, rugby, fun, mischief, smoking behind the bike sheds, that was pretty much what we got up to there. And as I was thinking about those days, one particular character came to mind and it was our matron in the boarding house whose name was Maureen Fountaine. Now, Maureen Fountaine was a fearsome and formidable woman. She'd have been about five foot two high and about the same across the shoulders. Her hair was the most unusual style of hair I have ever seen. I mean, naturally, it was very, very long, almost down to her ankles, black and grey, but no boy ever saw her with her hair down because she would roll it up and perch it precariously on top of her head and hold it in place with a few strategically placed knitting needles. <laughs> Maureen Fountain. And the sound of her hard-heeled leather shoes pressing onto the dormitory floor was enough to put dread into the heart of every single boy. I mean, she was very adept at walking through between the beds, even in pitch darkness. Picture the scene. Here's my dormitory. There are four boys in bed that side. There are four boys in bed that side. There's a door at that end that goes into another dormitory of eight. There's a door at this end that backs out onto the landing. And Maureen Fountaine, most normally, would stand at the door, would say goodnight, would switch out the light and would back out onto the landing. And we'd all have a lovely night's sleep. But actually, on some Nights, it didn't go according to plan. You see, this particular night that I'm going to tell you about, well, there was one thing that Maureen Fountain hated. Eating after lights out. Of course we all did it, but we used to destroy the evidence. It was like a scene from The Great Escape as we used to shake Mars bar wrappers out of the legs of our trousers at playtime. But on this particular night, there was a lad in our dormitory called Ashley Whale. Now, Ashley Whale was a sensitive lad, and his mum knew he was a sensitive lad, so she used to send him food. And this particular night, Ashley Whale called us over to his bedside cabinet, and he opened it. And inside was a whole, large, round, 
family-sized Mr. Kipling Bakewell tart. <laughs> We'd seen it. We were drooling. We were just waiting for the moment when Maureen Fountain would switch off the light, back out into the, into the landing, and then the feasting would begin. Good night, lads, she said. Oh, good night, matron. We said, waving, fawning tiredness. The light went out. The door clicked. And Ashley Whale, in the pitch black, uttered 12 words which are forever burned on my memory. Phew! Now that old bag has gone, we can scoff the cake. Those were his last words that evening. <laughs> you see, Maureen Fountain, instead of her usual backing out, was making her way with her ample bosom through between the beds, and she launched herself at Ashley Whale. No, you won't, Ashley Whale, she said. I'll have that. And she grabbed the Bakewell tart. She bustled her way out of the room. She slammed the door behind her. She was gone. Nobody spoke. Nobody dared move. One boy, a good eight minutes later, whispered, she'll scoff it now. <laughs> and eight unsatisfied boys drifted off to sleep. Well, the night passed, the days passed, the weeks passed, the months passed. In fact, five years passed, and we'd now grown. And Matron, this once formidable force, had somehow become our friend. And it came to our leaving week. And Maureen Fountain said, boys, I'd like to invite you to a party in my flat. Oh, thank you, Matron, that would be nice. So all 16 boys in my part of the boarding house went to Matron's flat. She had made a real effort. She had tipped pickled onion space invaders from the school tuck shop into a green ceramic bowl. <laughs> there were three, three types of fizzy drink, Coke, Tizer and Fanta. Impressed. And as we sat telling stories and recounting our tales of our battles over the year, and particularly as we mentioned the curious case of the tart in the night time, we were talking about this story. Suddenly, Maureen Fountain disappeared into her lobby. She opened her lobby cupboard and she came back smiling. And in her hands, she had Ashley Wales, whole, round, large, family-sized Bakewell tart. Five years! She said, hang on, why? I don't know. But she returned it, justice was done, forgiveness was all around, and everybody was happy. <laughs> now, my reason for telling you this story <laughs> is that we had really misjudged this lady. We had always thought of her as an unkind battle axe. Whereas in reality, she was actually a very caring, loving, genuine person. And we all misjudged her, actually. And it struck me that as a nation, we're very good at misjudging people. We're very good at writing people off before they've had an opportunity to write themselves in. We make assumptions about people. If you don't believe me, just think back to what I call the Subo syndrome. Remember Susan Boyle? We're sat there watching our television screens and out she comes and even Simon Cowell sat there going, Ooh. 
you know, as he does. Oh, here we go. And then she started to sing. And I wonder sometimes, were people amazed just because she had an amazing voice? Or was it because it suddenly dawned on a nation that we'd made an assumption about her? Because she didn't look like a pop star or an opera star, we thought she couldn't be. We'd all judged her, hadn't we? We'd all judged her. And people do do that. We make assumptions about people that aren't always true. And the truth is, we also make assumptions about life that aren't always true. Let me tell you another story, not one from my life this time. This is a story that Jesus told a couple of thousand years ago. Um, But it was a story that he told about people who make assumptions about life. Okay, now this story involved two groups of people and both groups of people were going to build themselves a house. Identical houses. For today, let's call them the Smiths and the Joneses. Okay, so the Smiths, they decided that on the hillside they would carve out uh, an area and have a nice rocky outcrop and they would build their house on the hillside overlooking the valley on that nice, firm, rock-solid foundation. So that's the Smiths. The Joneses over this side... They preferred water sports. So they decided that what they would do is they would build their house on this beautiful beach area, a lovely sandy outcrop just down by a curve in the river. That way they could enjoy canoeing and windsurfing during the day. When the evening came, they could just kind of sit and enjoy the nature and then tuck in at home. So they did that. They both built their houses and... uh, Sometimes the Smiths up here would look down on their friends, the Joneses, as they had all their lovely leisure pursuits and would think, have we done the right thing living up here? We haven't got any kind of beach. We've got no water sports. And the Joneses, meanwhile, down there were just loving it. You know, it was kind of like sunbathing, swimming, enjoying the scenery and just generally loving life. Both families looked reasonably content and they assumed that everything would be fine until one day in the early autumn one day in the early autumn the sky began to cloud over and a chill wind blew from the hill down into the valley and where both families had been outside enjoying a little bit of late afternoon autumn sun all of a sudden they realised that something was changing as the first few large drops of rain began to fall. Both families realised they were going to get drenched, so they ran towards their respective front doors. They got themselves in, they shook their coats dry, they hung them up, they shut the doors, they looked out. Phew! We're fine. We're fine. We're out of the storm. But things aren't always what they seem. Which is what I've called this message for you today. Things aren't always what they seem. And we can't assume that they are. You see, these two identical homes were just about to have a major difference revealed. The rain came down. The wind, it beat and blew against both of the houses. And the stream began to rise and the Smiths watched on with horror 
as their friends the Joneses' house with a creaking of timber and a smashing of glass began to crack and crumble and was washed down river. You see, the stream had risen. It simply undermined the foundations and they'd all been washed away. The newspaper reports the next morning said that no bodies were found. Now, I know I've embellished it a little bit, but Jesus did tell that story and he told it for a reason. He wanted to make a very clear point and the point that he wanted to make was this. Don't make the dangerous assumption that if your life looks good from the outside, then you are safe because you are not. Let me say that again. Don't make the dangerous assumption that if your life looks good from the outside, you are safe because you are not. Don't assume, is what Jesus was saying. So how does that apply to you and me and our wider world today? Let's talk about faith assumptions. There was a survey done in the United States, it was repeated in the UK just a few years ago, about people's opinions on faith. And do you know what they found was the largest assumption to do with faith in the USA and the UK? It was this. Most people believed that if they were good, they would go to heaven. Okay, hear that again. Most people believed that if they were good, they would go to heaven. So we have to ask ourselves the question, if I'm good, will I go to heaven? You know, I once spoke to a girl who said that she knew she was going to heaven. I said, you seem very sure. How do you know you're going to heaven? She said, firstly, I don't swear. I said, good. And she secondly, I don't bitch about beeping nobody. We have assumed that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Maybe today you've made that same assumption. Maybe even today you feel you ought to go to heaven because you've been good. Have you asked yourself the question ever? Am I going to heaven? When this is all wrapped up, when I die, am I going to heaven? It's a good question to ask. And there is actually only one group of people in the room today who can be certain and answer that question with a yes. Everybody else has assumed. So we've assumed that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through me. So what he's saying is, to get to heaven, we need to come to Jesus. That's what he's saying. In order to get to heaven, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father, who's in heaven, except through me. So to to get to heaven, we have to come to Jesus. Once you come to him, you're actually like one of the smiths. You're starting to build your life, your house, on a strong, solid foundation. Whereas up until now, it might have been a little vulnerable and a little shaky. Once you come to Jesus, you're building your life on a solid rock. And actually, when I finish speaking this morning, I'm going to invite some of you to come to him. 
He said he's the way and I'll invite you to come to him. Now coming is an action, it's something that we do. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to do an action when I ask you or invite you to come to him. I'm going to invite you, when I ask you if you want to come to Jesus, I'm going to invite you just to raise your hand so that we can pray for you and get you any help you might need. Okay, that's all I'm going to ask you to do. Let me just explain a little bit more. The truth is, if you build your life anywhere other than on Jesus Christ himself, you are a bit like the Jones family down here. And when the storms come, you will be undermined and you will be washed away. You see, some of you will have built your life on your career. But in these climates, we know recession has hit us and we know that many jobs are not as secure as they once were. See, if you've built your life on your career, what happens when you're made redundant? Some of you will have built your life on money. How much we've got and how much stuff we can buy with it. But what happens in a recession when there's too much month left at the end of our money rather than the other way around? The truth is, most of us will have built our lives around ourselves. We're actually, if we're honest with one another, we're actually largely selfish. We build our lives around our needs and our comforts. You and I are largely selfish. You see, when Jesus told the story about these people building their houses in different places, he had a word that he used for the people who built their life on things like their career, on things like money, on things like status. He had a word for them. Can you remember what that word is? How did he describe the people that built their house on things other than him? Foolish. Foolish. So if today you've built your life anywhere other than on Jesus... He would describe you as foolish. I don't want that on my tombstone, do you? Chris Kilby, foolish. (laughs) It's not a great epitaph, is it? And I bet you don't either. But that's how he describes us. You see, all of these things, career, money, status, possessions, relationships, they're all like building our house on the sand. They're all foolish and the truth is that there is a storm coming. There is a storm coming that will undermine those things. Now I'm not talking here about the little storms of life that hit us all. Now of course, yes, they come to all of us. Being a Christian does help in the storms of life. You've got God with you. He brings you some security, help, encouragement, provision, whatever it might be. Certainly better being in a storm with God than without God. The guys in the boat that were with Jesus could tell you that. But I'm not talking about those little storms of life. What I'm talking about here is a storm that is coming that will separate the Smiths from the Joneses. You see, Jesus described these people as foolish. He did have a word as well for the Smiths over on this side who built their life on Jesus, on the rock. Do you remember what that word was? Wise. Why? He said they were wise. Now, I wouldn't mind that on my tombstone. Chris Kilby, wise. I'd like that. A wise thing to do. So, if you were to raise your hand at the end of the meeting today and say, I want to come to Jesus, you are doing a wise thing. Sensible, pragmatically good. I can tell you, you won't find many Christians in here today that say, I wish I'd never done that, you know. 
You just won't find them because they've made a wise choice and it's now bearing fruit in their lives. So I'm saying to you today, there is a storm coming. There is a storm coming that will separate the Smiths from the Joneses. And that storm is set at a date in the future which none of us actually know when it is but it's something that we shall all face. And this storm I'm talking about comes on the day when each of us will stand in front of Jesus Christ himself and he will make an assessment of us and he alone will decide whether we go to heaven or whether we go to hell. Now, for those of you that have assumed that because you've been good, you get into the heaven side of things, that might come as a bit of a shock at that moment when you see him and he says no. You may have assumed because you've been good, you'll go to heaven. Here's a bit from the Bible, I'll put the words up behind me, that Jesus himself spoke, it describes what will really happen to you and I on that day. When the Son of Man comes, in his glory, and the angels with him, he will sit on the throne in heavenly glory, all the nations will be gathered before him. That means, nations means people, put your hands up if you're a person, okay? That means all of us will be gathered before him, And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So the sheep go that way, the goats go that way, the smiths go that way, the joneses go that way, the wise go that way, the foolish go that way. Two lines of people. Two lines of people. Look similar but with massively different destinies. Hugely different destinies. You see, to the sheep, Jesus says this. He says, come, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Come into your inheritance. Come into the king. Come into the thing I've been preparing for you since the beginning of the world. Come to the party. That's what he says to those. And they'll go. They'll go to eternal life, joy, peace. No sickness, no disease, no need to pray for the sick because there's no sick people. Heaven. Laughter, friendship, relationship, love, all the things we love and enjoy. Sadly for the goats, it's a somewhat different destiny in mind. The scriptures tell us that this is what Jesus says to them in the goat line. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they'll go. They'll go to an eternal punishment of some kind. An eternity of utter selfishness where there's no love no relationship no friendship no laughter no joy no peace see I don't know what you think of when you think of hell but just imagine your life with every good thing taken out and every bad thing remaining and that will give you a picture all the things that you love about life gone 
All good things come from God, and if there's, no, if there's no God in hell, there will be nothing good there. Even the pictures that the Bible uses to describe it, things like burning lakes of fire, I mean, that's a picture, it's a metaphor, but it doesn't sound great to me. Does it you? I mean, that's just a picture of what it's like, let alone, I mean, a picture is never as good as the real thing. I could show you a picture of my wife in my wallet, but I couldn't cuddle it. A picture is just a snapshot. And the metaphors that the Bible uses for this absence of God in eternity helps us to realise it is unimaginably, unimaginably horrific. And that's where the Joneses, the goats, the fools would go. So these two lines were not purely divided up. I want you to understand this. These two lines were not divided up by who had been good and who hadn't been good because the decisive issue is not our behaviour, but it's our relationship to Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through me. So unless you and I have personally come to Jesus, we are in the Jones line. I want you to hear that this morning. Unless you personally as an individual have come to Jesus, you're currently in this line. You're in the Jones line, you're in the goat line, you're in the fool line, you're in the hell line. Right now. The wonderful thing is, when you come to Jesus, you change lines. You join the Smith's line. You join the wise line, the sheep line, the heaven line. Now some of you may have suddenly realised today, I'm not sure I'm in the right line. The penny may have dropped. You know, sometimes, you know, before I was a Christian, my girlfriend at the time took me along to church meetings sometimes to try and help me to understand what she believed. And there were some times when, for me, the penny dropped. When I realised something about life, or I realised something about God, or I realised something about me, and I knew I had to act on it. I want to encourage you to act on this. If you found out today that you're not in the right line, I'm going to explain to you right now how you swap lines. How you swap lines. Okay, so listen carefully, because this is the information you need right now. The information you need. You know, somebody once said Bible stands for basic information before leaving earth. <laughs> this is what you need to hear. Okay? Which line would you end up in? Are you in the wrong line? How do you change? Well, I've explained in this one way already. I've said you need to come to Jesus. But it's not enough just to kind of have a vague belief in God. You know, the devil believes in God. He won't be in heaven. How do you swap lines? I wonder if, while I'm just sharing this last bit, if the musicians could just quietly come up behind me because I'd like to sing at the end. But I want you guys not to be distracted. I want you to kind of focus in on what I'm saying right now. Because this is the essence of the message that Jesus gave us of how we swap lines. Okay, to get into the heaven line, you need to be related to God. 
You need to be related to God who became a man called Jesus, who lived on earth and who died on earth by being nailed through his wrists and through his ankles to a wooden cross. He had uh, some metal spikes that would have been about three pounds in weight, about this long, driven through his wrists and then twisted to go through both ankles and he would have been hoisted up on the outskirts of Jerusalem on a stinking execution area of a rubbish tip amongst a couple of common criminals. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who had not done a thing wrong in his life, now being punished. I want you to understand that you need to be related to God. Let me illustrate it like this. At the moment, let's say this represents a list of all the things that you've ever thought, all the things that you've ever said, and all the things that you've ever done. You see, when you have your face-to-face with Jesus, he's going to get that book out and he's going to go through it in fine detail. Now, unfortunately, the Bible tells us that that catalogue of rebellion and independence from God separates us from God. So here's me, here's my catalogue of rebellion and rebellious independence, selfish thoughts and words and actions. Here's God. I can't know him. I can't have relationship with him. I stay stuck. I stay in the hell line. There's no way I can have a relationship with God because I can't break through these things that separate me from him. He is holy, I am not. Never the twain shall meet. But it says that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, somehow, incredibly, my sin was laid on him. And he took it away and he separated it from me as far as the east is from the west. That means as far as it can go in Bible terms. So he's taken every wrong thing I've ever said, thought and done away. And that means now I can come to know him. You see, that only happened because Jesus was punished for all of my wrong, all of my wrong thoughts, all of my wrong words, all of my wrong actions, all of my falling short of God's standards. When he died, he paid the price completely. But he also paid the price for you. This is why he said to come to heaven, to go to heaven, you have to come to me. And what he means by that is he means that I want you to believe that when I died, I also took away your catalogue. So that when you have your face-to-face with Jesus on that stormy day and you're before him and he gets the book out, instead of seeing all of the things that you have said and thought of done that would condemn you, instead of him seeing that, what he sees is the representative acts of Jesus who was perfect. So he looks at you and he says, great, perfect. There's not a thing in here to condemn you. Come. See, in the book of Romans, Paul said, if you believe in your, if you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means boss, in charge, 
and can believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And what he means by that is get to heaven. See, the fact that Jesus died is important. But the fact that he rose again is even more important. Because it means there is a life that goes beyond death. It means for you today, it means that all of this stuff that would have counted against you can no longer count against you because he's defeated it all. And now you can come to heaven, not on your own merits, but on the merits of Jesus, simply by believing in him. So you can be cleansed, you can be forgiven, you can be set free, you can have a new start, this time with God getting it right. You can join the wise line, you can join the heaven line. And in about 20 seconds time, I'm going to invite you to do that. Okay, so I want you to start thinking, is this for me, is this something I need to do? And I want you to begin to make a decision in your mind now, actually, I want to make certain that I am going to heaven. I want to make sure, certain that I'm no longer in this line. I do not want to be separated from everything good. I do not want an eternity of punishment and separation. I actually want love, joy, peace. I want future. I want friendship. I want eternity. In that kind of setting, not that one. And when I ask you to raise your hand in a minute, you're saying, I want to swap lines. Remember, to go to heaven, you come to Jesus. So you raising your hand is an indication that you want to come to him. You want to believe that when he died, he died for you. That when he rose again to new life, it gave you a chance at new life. Do you understand? This is important because people's eternal future is going to be decided in this moment. You can make a decision today that can change you forever. I want to invite you all to stand. Could we stand? So are you ready? Because I want you to understand that this is the wise thing to do. In one sense, it's a no-brainer. Who would choose death? Who would choose condemnation? Who would choose separation? Who would choose sickness? Who would choose suffering? None of us. What I'm saying to you today is choose life. Choose joy. Choose abundance. This is the wise choice. Look at all those around you, many of whom have made this decision to believe that Jesus is in charge of their lives. And it's transformed them. You know, I haven't told you anything about my story. Those of you that deal with addictions, that raised your hand at that time, I want to explain to you, you know, I was in a coma from a drug overdose in hospital. As a 20-something. I was just a hedonist. I just wanted to live life for the next party. And I nearly died. I was paralysed all down one side of my body as a result of a combination, a cocktail of drugs. Every time I tried a fresh start, 
Whatever town I went to, the first person I met would always be a dealer. So I'd be a musician, an alcoholic, drug addicted, failure. And the minute I said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord, I believe he died and I believe he rose again, the power of all of that stuff over my life was broken. Broken. And it's like I was born all over again. And I had a fresh start. Quite literally, I went onto a tube train in London. I wasn't a Christian. I said, God, I am sorry for the things that I've done that have separated me from you. Please forgive me. And in that moment, he forgave me. He told me I was his son. He told me I would never leave him. And I came up the tube in East London, a different man. Yeah, seriously. I will never shut up about what Jesus has done in my life. Never. And you see, that can be yours today. You know, I'm so thrilled with my children and my wife and my life and my church and the the purpose and destiny that God has given me. Make that choice today. Choose life. Why go there when you can go here? Let's bow our heads. Okay, this is what I'm going to do to make it easier. I'm going to count down from five to zero. When you get to zero, when I get to zero, if you want to choose Jesus... I'm going to choose life today. You just raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm just going to pray for you. Remember, I'm asking you to come to Jesus. So that's you putting your hand up and I will pray for you and you pray with me and I will lead you to Jesus. Thank you. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Pop your hand up. Well done, well done. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight. Just keep your hands up for a moment just so that I can make sure I haven't missed anybody. Nine, ten, thank you. Eleven, twelve, thank you. Is there anybody else who wants to choose Jesus? Thirteen, thank you. Anybody else who wants to choose life and choose Jesus today? This is the life choice. Well done. Well done. Just before we move on, just put your hands down. I think somebody else, 14 at the back. I didn't see you, sir. Sorry. Firstly, I'd just like to say well done to those of you that had the courage to raise your hands. And I want the church to give you a round of applause first. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Now I want you to pray this with me because you've indicated that you want to come to Jesus. This is a prayer that you pray with me and it's enabling you to, I'm just going to verbalise it for you so you've got some words to say just to say, Jesus, I believe you're my Lord, I believe you died and rose again, I want to ask for your forgiveness and I want to press on now with you, okay? So pray this with me in your heart. And those of you that are Christians, I want, you to, encourage, I want to encourage you, while I'm praying this with those folk, I want you to pray for them as well that the Holy Spirit would come and strengthen their faith right now, would assure them that they're now born all over again, they've got a new start, just like I had. Let's pray. Okay, you you, you 13 or 14, you, you, you speak this with me in your own heart, or if you want to say it out, you can. 
Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died on the cross for me to show me how much you love me. Thank you that on the cross you dealt with all of my shortcomings, all of my failures, all of my weakness, all of my independence, all of my rebellion and you destroyed it and you've separated it from me now.